Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. April 15th, 2022 marks the 75th anniversary of the day that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball. In this episode, we talk with Costa Kennedy about Jackie Robinson's career in baseball and his lifetime commitment to civil rights. In his new book, True, Mr. Kennedy writes about Robinson's life through the lens of four significant years, 1946 when he started in the minors, 1949 when he was named National League MVP, 1956, which was his final year playing baseball, and 1972, the year of his untimely death at age 53. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. And so Jackie Robinson made his major league debut at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn in a game managed by Clyde Sukforth, April 15, 1947. Jackie officially broke baseball's color barrier against the Braves' Johnny Sane. The game itself was not a sellout. Robinson went hitless in his first major league game, but still he made an impact. In the seventh inning, Jackie laid down a bunt. The blazing speed he displayed as he ran to first base resulted in an error. Later in the inning, Pete Reeser drove Jackie home with a go-ahead and eventual winning run in the Dodgers' 5-3 triumph. Kostya Kennedy, it's the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball. With the distance of of time, what what is the significance of that event? Well, it was a tremendously significant event. As the clip pointed out, it wasn't a sellout at the time, uh, but the impact certainly resonated in the season that followed, in the year that followed, and to this day. Uh, one, One way to think about this is to realize that when he made that debut, uh, Martin Luther King had still never given a public speech or a sermon. He, he was not uh, a, a large figure yet. So the, what we think of at that era of the civil rights movement hadn't really begun. And Jackie was truly a pioneer in that sense. Um, so when you think about you know, Dr. King, probably with a little uh, characteristic generosity, but also being true to fact, has said he wouldn't have been accepted as he was or gotten where he was if not for what Jackie had done. Uh, and to have an African-American ball player in a, on a field with all white players and in a venue, Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, uh, which had traditionally had very few, it wasn't segregated the way venues in the South were, but had traditionally had very few African-American uh, spectators, that day and particularly as the season went on, 
began to have more and more. So you'd have uh, white Americans and black Americans sitting next to one another, rooting for the same team, rooting for Jackie Robinson or rooting for Duke Snyder, whoever they were rooting for. And the impact of that, uh, especially, I think, Susan, on younger people, if you were 9 or 10 years old and a big Dodger fan, that teaches you more in a way than, than any book learning might, might do. So it was a hugely impactful day then uh, as now. Well, speaking of books, you have a new biography out about Jackie Robinson, and its title is True. Uh, why did you give it that title? True is, is meant as sort of a, I, I think, an apt descriptor for how Jackie went about things. Uh, he was always true to his mission and to his effort. Uh, he was true to his convictions, and he was also true to his contradictions. And by that I mean that in being true to the mission, that changed a little bit, meaning the way he behaved on the, on the ball field, the people he interacted, how he went about things. That, the particulars changed, but the mission of, of successfully integrating baseball and having a productive public life uh, as, an, as an exemplar did not change. Um, and when, we, when I talk about his contradictions, um, which we could touch on, Later, perhaps, but he, he was politically, as his life went on, uh, you, you couldn't necessarily put him in a, in a pigeonhole for how he'd believe on certain issues. He supported Democrats, he supported Republicans. Of course, he was always a civil rights advocate, and that was his number one issue. But in terms of other issues, such as involvement in the Vietnam War and other things, he was, could be contradictory, and he owned that in a way that I think many of us don't today. Uh, we tend to fall in one camp or another. Uh, and so that's all part of, I think, why true is a, a good, a true descriptor of how Jackie went about things. The Jackie Robinson story has often been told in the decades uh, since he broke the color barrier. What did you want to do with your book? What's different about it? So I, I was trying to look for a way to, to bring him to life um, without necessarily uh, an entire soup-to-nuts biography, which had been done and been done very well, um, but by looking at four distinct slices of his life. So the subtitle is It's True, and then the four seasons of Jackie Robinson. And Susan knows the particular years in his life, and it's also metaphorically the spring, summer, autumn, and winter of Robinson's life. So when we first see him, uh, it's actually 1946, which is the year just before the clip that you played, when he played in an all-white uh, league, the International League. He played for the Montreal Royals, who were the top minor league team for the Dodgers. And that was truly where he first integrated. For a while, there was one other African-American ball player on the team with him, but only for a short time. And otherwise, the league was entirely white, had never had black players in its modern form. Um, and a very, very important year for, for Jackie and for his wife, Rachel, as they began to get sort of uh, embraced this new public life. He was known as a college athlete already, but this world of breaking into what was called organized baseball and being in that spotlight. And then we see him in 1949, uh, where in that year he was the best baseball player alive and the most famous athlete alive. Um, so you're really seeing him astride in, in the peak of his, of his life, uh, his, his athletic and public life. Uh, in 1956, which is the third season, as his last year of playing Major League Baseball, when he was already uh, beset 
with some health difficulties. Um, he, he would go on to be, uh, have diabetes diagnosed uh, shortly after retiring the next year. And in that last season, you really see a, a certain valiance in him. He returned from a difficult year to perform quite well as a baseball player. And he was also, by now, he was involved with Dr. King. He was making that transition away from the game and into uh, his, his post-career life. And the last season uh, is not a baseball season, but it's uh, 1972, which was the year that, that Robinson died, uh, way too young at, at 53. And an extremely important and interesting year leading up to that unfortunate death um, where he was sort of repatriated into baseball. Uh, one of the things that gets a little forgotten is that he, in his years after leaving the game in 56, he wasn't in baseball at all. He, there was no PR role. There was no coaching or managerial, ma managerial position. He simply was outside the game. And he was sort of repatriated, particularly by the Dodgers and in my baseball as a whole in that last year, which was a very interesting thing to see. Um, and so I, I felt that seeing him, I, I'll admit a, a little bit of inspiration in the, the Michael Apted movies, Seven Up and Fourteen Up, where you see people um, at distinct points in their life. And there was something very attractive to that about uh, that way of storytelling to me. And I felt that you could bring him bring him to life by sort of seeing him in these distinct periods. Well, looking at your own uh, biography, I think this is your third baseball biography. Is that correct? Yes, yes I, I have a book called 56 on Joe DiMaggio um, and Pete Rose and American Dilemma. Yep. So what does baseball mean to you? Oh, baseball has been uh, sort of the love of my life uh, outside of family and, and human being um, since growing up. Uh, uh, it has always been an extremely important part of part of um, my professional career and my personal personal life. Uh, just a sport that I that I love and have been close to, and and still still count among my best friends <laughs> as a way to say, as a way to speak. Well, going back to Jackie Robinson's life and the early years that you uh, touch on before. Uh, the first profiled year, uh, two things stood out to me that signaled the kind of player and man he would become. You referenced it. First of all, his athletic skill, where you report that he lettered in four sports at UCLA. Um, and the second thing was his court-martial by the Army. So we get an early indication of the direction he's going to go with his life. Could you talk about both of those things, his athletic skill and his early interest in civil rights and, and how he matured both of those? Absolutely. It's a great, great question. So I'll just go with the court-martial first. So in, in, in 1945, he's uh, in the Army, and he's on an Army bus. He's, he's, he's stateside. He's not abroad. And he's asked to give up his seat, very analogous, not exactly the same in particular, but very analogous to uh, Rosa Parks. And he refuses. And one thing that's really important to know is he knows the law. He knows that on a, an intra-army bus like that, there are no grounds for, for asking somebody to move. Uh, so he refuses to. He ends up getting a court-martialed for this. He, when, he, when he refuses to move, he then gets into an argument. Um, and, and they give him this court-martial, which ends up being completely bogus. It gets dismissed um, as soon as it sort of goes up the ranks. Uh, it's recognized as not being legitimate. So. But that was an important part of his background, and it showed his sort of refusal to take what isn't right. Uh, and, and so we see that when he's a very young man at that 
time. As you point out, he was a terrific athlete in high school growing up in Pasadena and then at UCLA where he first met his wife, Rachel. Uh, he was a star, star football player, track and field, basketball, and of course baseball. Um, and, and when he came in in 1946, it's another reason why that was an important year. He was this great athlete, as you point out, but he wasn't as school a baseball player as some of the other guys who'd been playing the game itself um, in a more consistent manner for more years. He'd played in college and he'd played briefly in the Negro Leagues, just 45 games. And so he was still a little raw around the edges and he would make sort of fundamental baseball mistakes. Um, he's an extremely smart baseball player and person, so he, he caught on really quickly. But it was important for him to sort of have a little area to, to get to know the nuances of the game, positioning in the field, uh, certain base running things. Uh, so that was part of the reason from his athletic standpoint why that was an important year. Two people, uh, which uh, we'll hear more about from you, I'm sure, were truly instrumental in the arc of Jackie Robinson's life. One of those is Rachel uh, Robinson, and the other we'll talk about in a few minutes is Branch Rickey, who hired him into the Dodgers. But let's start with with Rachel Robinson. We have a clip from uh, much later on in her life, uh, just so people can see and hear her. This is from an event at the White House in 2013, where uh, Jackie Robinson was honored, and she's talking about her life with Jack, as she called him. What were your main motivations for persevering? A main motivation for persevering was we wanted a a full life, a decent life. And as Jack always, uh, we have a quote that Jack has used a lot in his books and on his speeches. A life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. And so that it was not just our own lives, but we wanted to have some impact in the society. And that we had that determination we had from a very early age. And uh, I think we tended to think of what people call obstacles, we tended to think of them as challenges, something you had to address. You couldn't walk away from it. And uh, so that, that was another motivating factor because there were a lot of challenges in, in our time. Kasha Kennedy, we heard Mrs. Robinson, and you also report that Jackie Robinson used the plural pronoun we when talking about themselves and their their partnership in life. Can you talk about what she brought to the partnership? Yes, I mean, I'll start with the macro view, which is that without Rachel Robinson, we might not have had Jackie Robinson. She was integral to his to, to, to his sort of strength and ability to negotiate what was a truly uh, difficult um, and challenging, to use, to echo Rachel's words, uh, time. She was sort of, she's always characterized as being sort of steady and, and the, the calming influence uh, on Jack, and she always called him Jack, not Jackie. Uh, she was an extremely intelligent woman who they met at UCLA when she was training to be a nurse and she went to uh, postgraduate school to get her degree uh, and went on to have a, her own very successful professional career. Um, and, and she was, you know, she was sounding board, advisor. Uh, they made all the decisions together. Uh, and it was an interesting mix. At the same time, she was very supportive uh, in in a, perhaps a more traditional way, both at the same time, because she and Jackie, but she was always aware of the magnitude of what they were doing. 
And to be the first just was something of a whole different order than to be the second or the third or the fourth African-American in, in baseball. Uh, and, and while those other players also suffered analogous racism and, and very difficult times, the spotlight wasn't on them the, the way it was for, for the Robinsons. And, you know, she might, whether she was truly comfortable in her heart or not being in the spotlight, that's for her to expound on a little bit. But she always carried herself and they behaved in a way that they were comfortable with the responsibility that they were given. And, and their children did too. A, a lot of that coming from Rachel was there to, to nurture the, the kids. Uh, Jackie was this big celebrity in addition to an athlete and was, was out quite a bit. Uh, so her overall impact on his life was remarkable. And the last thing I just want to say about Rachel here is that after Jackie's death in 1972, she went on to form uh, the Jackie Robinson Foundation, which is still in existence today. It's, it's uh, run by the CEO, Della Britton, and they give uh, scholarships to kids across the country who need scholarships, and they mentor them through, uh, through college. And uh, it's an extremely successful, well-run program that's now about 50 years in and has simply just changed people's lives, changed people's lives. They, she's gone on doing that of her own volition, of course, and also in Jack's legacy. So it, it gives an indication of the kind of person she was and remains. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Well, we should tell people that Mrs. Robinson will mark her 100th birthday in July of this year. Uh, Branch Rickey, who was he? So he was the president and general manager of the Dodgers, and he was the man uh, who wanted to integrate baseball and he saw a window into doing this um in during the war years that's when he first started thinking and talking about it before he had thought about robinson particularly uh and and i think his motivation susan was was uh, he what he famously had a portrait of abraham lincoln in his office and he did think that it was kind of uh, asinine to have <laughs> to have segregation in, in baseball he didn't think it was right but i also think he was and he openly would say it aware that this was a business opportunity to attract new fans to the game and simply to make the Dodgers better. Uh, and in the years after Robinson came up, they had other great African-American players, uh, the catcher Roy Campanella, the pitcher Don Newcomb, and others. Uh, they were ahead of the game, and it helped the Dodgers become uh, the, a powerhouse in the National League. They were, they were pulling from a talent pool that others weren't. So he was thinking about it, uh, in humanistic terms, without a doubt, 
um, and he's somebody who made, was very pleased that Jackie had Rachel, had a stabilizing partner in his life. Um, he liked that, that Robinson had, had had the court-martial, wasn't afraid to sort of stand up. He liked that Robinson had played among white players as a football player at UCLA and was used to a level of integration. Um, and he, one other crucial part about uh, Robinson was his speed. And that was something that, and the way he ran the base, a very aggressive player who could change the game on the base path. And that was something that Ricky um, recognized and felt was important. He felt he wanted people to come to the stadium and be like, that's the player that I want to watch. I can't take my eyes off that guy. He's the most exciting player. So even more than, say, a big, strong home run hitter or something, a player who was engaged in the game in that way. Uh, and Ricky, Ricky was the father of so much of baseball. He invented the minor league system as we know it. He used uh, data analytics uh, in the 40s uh, in a way that, that is a forerunner to the way baseball uh, general managers use them today. Uh, way ahead of his game, a really brilliant mind, and of course um, a pioneer uh, w with Jackie in, in this venture. We have a, a clip from a, a, a documentary called Branch Ricky, A Matter of Fairness. It's from the University of Michigan News Service, and his grandson, uh, Branch Ricky III, is, is in this clip that we have. But it, it goes to his motivation, and in it, in it uh, just to set it up a bit, he's talking about an incident in 1903 that impacted his view on fairness in the sport. We'll watch. The clerk behind the counter saw... Charles Thomas, and said, he can't stay here. I can remember him sitting on the edge of the bed, pulling his fingers, with a great big tears running down his cheeks, uh, a great effort to control his emotions, and he was good at that, properly so. I, I can, how he would try just to pull his skin off, as he would say, if they were only white. That was the only difference. And he was a fine student, a fine scholarly fellow. He said that from that point, he had determined if he was ever in a position to do something about that injustice, he would do it. And true, true to his word on that count. But I'm wondering if you think Branch Rickey has gotten the recognition he deserves for advancing civil rights in the country. Um, you know, I think that in, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Uh, I think that people, in baseball terms, in baseball circles, he's sort of recognized as, as a partner uh, in the experiment with Jackie Robinson. Outside of the game, probably not, uh, because you can't underestimate what a big arena, what a big venue baseball was at that time. It really was America's game, and people of all genders and ages watched it, and um, to, to, to integrate at that level was, was remarkably effective. Uh, so I think maybe he, he hasn't. Um, you know, he was a religious man, and I think his conviction of that this was, uh, in addition to things we talked about earlier, this was the right thing to do, was, um, was evident uh, in, in, in what he chose to do. I think, he, he, yeah, he's kind of uh, probably not gotten quite the... Uh, quite the recognition he deserved, although he would, he used to say, he used to downplay it. He, he, had, he had a very healthy um, sense of self when it came to his ability to run a baseball team. 
but he always deflected acceptance. He'd say, uh, sorry, accepted sort of praise for the um, for for Robinson because he would say, you know, I'm praised for bringing in Jackie, but he was just the best man for the job, and all I did was hire him, sort of downplaying what he had done. And in some ways, he knew that he was a facilitator, but the real groundbreaker, the person who was there in the trenches, was Robinson, uh, and, and he was always honest about that, generous in his understanding about that. Um, and I think that I've had the pleasure of, of talking with and knowing his grandson, Brand Tricky III, who's done some wonderful work in baseball himself, um, th- that has stayed a certain, certain humility in that area ha- has carried on through the generations. And you describe in your book the, well, the way that the two supported each other when the times got particularly difficult for Jackie Robinson. Do you remember the expression, sit in the boat? which uh, Jackie Robinson yep. would refer to. Can you explain what that meant for him metaphorically? <laughs> yeah, so he, he, that was something that Branch would say when the you know, metaphorical uh, storms were raging and the, and the surf was high and, and the boat was rocking. He'd just say, just sit in the boat. Just be calm, sit there, do, do what we have to do, and let's get to the next day. So that was his me- meta- metaphor sit in the boat. And he and, I mean, Jackie loved him. And, and he said that. Rachel has continued to say it over the years. He was really a father figure in many ways for, for Jack, who, uh, whose father was not in the picture of his life when he was growing up. Uh, Jackie uh, could, could be a little combative when he felt something was right. And over the years, he'd have arguments with people he was very close with and respected very much, including Martin Luther King and Adam Clayton Powell and other civil rights people. Uh, he never really had any friction or anything with Branch Rickey. And when Rickey left the Dodgers in the early 50s, there was a hard time for Robinson. He, he never fully readjusted to new Dodgers management the way he had. He was always um, believed in Branch Rickey, appreciated the support he had from him. They didn't spend all that much time together, given how close and how intertwined they were. But he was the most important figure outside, of course, of his, uh, his family in Jackie's life, without question. Before Montreal, which you say was a, a first season that would remain a, an enduring special memory for the Robinsons, there was spring training in Florida. And uh, you write that for two people, Jackie and Rachel, who had been raised in California, exposure to the racism of the Deep South was really surprising and an eye-opener. What were conditions like for the Robinsons in 1946? So this was really their first uh, exposure or, or sustained exposure to segregation. It was pretty much Rachel's first exposure at all to segregation. Um, Jack had been born in Georgia but left at about age one, um, had seen some segregation in his life as an athlete, but not, uh, not living with it day to day the way they had to in Florida. Uh, their conditions themselves, they lived with a family, the Harrises that were a local prominent African-American family, um, and, and their conditions were quite nice, uh, except for the fact that they had to be by themselves uh, while the, uh, the rest of the team was at a nice team hotel. Uh, no other wives came to spring training, uh, but Rachel was there, given what they were going through. Uh, there was one other African-American ball player at that time, uh, Johnny Wright, who was in spring training camp, uh, and they were... You know, there were teams that refused to play against them. There were uh, 
you, you can only imagine the things that they heard. Um, the, the stands were segregated wherever they went. Uh, there were times when um, Rachel would be unable to get a get a cab to go from one place to another. It was it was a difficult difficult uh, period of time and very eye opening when they. They talked about it was a long bus ride. They flew and then ended up through a series of uh, mishaps having to take a bus the last uh, several hundred miles or to, to spring training. And it was this, everybody had to be on the back of the bus and there wasn't enough room. And Rachel talked about what, exper- what that experience was for them, coming into the South in that way and how people would come in from working on the field, African-Americans, it was... Uh, at that time of day, and everybody in the back sort of formed this community. Uh, some people would stand up for a little while so other people could sit. Uh, they were scooching over to make room. They were helping one another, and she really sort of fed off that, and they tried to always look at the strength they had at the community and found some of that community uh, in spring training that sort of helped them as an oasis. She also described their, their little home in with the Harrises and the Oasis from all the difficulty they had because every day was, you know, every day was a challenge. Every day you were going out and you were having to face what people might say. Um, and, and there were also what Jackie was feeling a lot of baseball players felt threatened. Um, perhaps they were bigoted, uh, even though they may have been less bigoted, were nonetheless nervous that now more people were going to co- be competing for their jobs. So it was, it was a tough, very tough, time for them. So if he debuted in April 18th, 1946 on the field in Montreal, why was his first year in Montreal such a special experience for both of the Robinsons? So Montreal was chosen, um, it was part of, as I mentioned, the the minor league system, the international league. They played most of their games, except for one team in uh, Toronto, in the States, in Buffalo, Syracuse, Baltimore, towns like that. Uh, but Canada, which certainly was not immune to racism, but didn't have didn't have segregation, didn't have that sort of um, sort of codified uh, split between us and them. There was, if anything, there was more friction between English speaking and French speaking um, in in uh, Montreal. That was the uh, that was the, the central divide, I guess you would say, at that time. Uh, so it was, a, it was a little bit of a softer landing place. Uh, they certainly embraced him. The community did. It was a hugely, they, they drew more fans than they had ever drawn. African American, of course, but fans of all types coming out to the park. Uh, it was a big deal. It was the minor leagues, but they, they played in a big ballpark. They ended up winning the, what was called a Little World Series. And Jackie developed very much as a baseball player and as a person, being in the spotlight walking around and having people come up and want his autograph, people you know, walking past their apartment or their house just to say they were near it. Uh, it was sort of, a, 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 as I say, a bit of a softer entry into the world that he was going into. And they always so appreciated the way they were embraced by their neighbors. They lived in a French-speaking area um, with primarily uh, non-African-Americans or non-black uh, community around them, and they were really embraced. And they talked a lot about the strength that they found in that, and how it sort of it showed it gave them a little possibility. It, it made them see how 
it could be a good life, which it went on to be very much so for them, despite all the hardships. Uh, and I think that that was, that was kind of a way, an entry point for them. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If Jackie Robinson was, as you write, a phenomenon from his first day on the field, how did the black players who had been fine athletes, many who had been relegated to playing in the Negro Leagues, react to his success? It's really a wonderful question. I think there are, there, the answers are varied, um, different people. I think overall then, and, and this is certainly a generalization, but they're, of course, happy to, to see this happen, right? And to see that, that an African-American could play and succeed. Everybody knew they were, you know, of course, good enough. But despite all the pressure and everything to overcome that and, and shine in the way he did, uh, there was some sort of, some people felt that, oh, Josh Gibson, who was this great uh, African-American slugger, might have been the first. A lot of people thought Monty Irvin, who later came up and had a wonderful career with the Giants, might have been the first. I think there was a feeling like there, there was certain some envy, uh, but but overall people were supportive, and there was no question. It, it, there could have, certainly there were other, plenty of other players who were good enough to do it, but not everyone. You know, took it takes a certain temperament and takes a certain level of ability to get through what he did, and I think people recognize that. And overall, um, people and and in the years that followed really came to appreciate what he did and, and how he did it. it. It was that, the bringing up of Jackie and then the, the gradual integration of baseball over the next decade ultimately essentially ended the Negro Leagues because there was, there was less of an appetite for, for those leagues when now the be- very best players were having a chance to play in, in, in uh, national and American leagues. So there was a lot going on there, so there was a lot to sort of unpack. But I think he could, you couldn't help but respect Jack. You couldn't help, again, but respect the, the, the integrity of his effort and his mission um, and his grace. If you came on in, in years later as a, as a black player, Jackie was the first guy over there to, to talk to you and say, hey, you know, welcome, you belong here, you're going to do it. Uh, very, very supportive. Uh, so uh, I think for the bottom line, there was, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of support for her, for him, even if there was individual case of a little sense of envy or, or loss. We're at the halfway point in our conversation about Jackie Robinson on the 75th anniversary of his integration of Major League Baseball. Uh, you mentioned that part two focuses on the year 1949. Jackie Robinson is 30 years old. And what I'm going to do is just pick out two stories from this section because we want people to read your book <laughs> in the end here. But uh, just before we get to those stories, how had Jackie Robinson matured by the age of 30, both as a player and a person? Uh, again, wonderful question, Susan. I, I think you know, in his first year in, with the Dodgers, 1947, um, and then again in 48, he was, and this is something that's been part of his, um, part of the story of Jackie Robinson, that, that he, in talking with Branch Rickey, had agreed that he was going to sort of turn the other cheek 
as it were. So even though he was faced a lot of racial taunting, even though pitchers would intentionally hit him with pitches, so no player in 1947 or 48 was hit with more pitches than Jackie Robinson. That's dangerous, right? Uh, and, and he would get hit, and he'd just simply stand up and jog to first base, did not fight back, turn the other cheek. And he believed that that was a way to temper reaction, right? To sort of uh, not allow people to make, make less room for criticism. Uh, and he was successful those first two years. In 1949, before that season, he went to, to Branch Rick and he said, listen, I can't do this anymore. The gloves are off, so to speak. Uh, and he decided he was going to be an aggressive player. And he said as much in spring training. And he came out, and that year was an enormously more uh, animated, aggressive player on the, on the base path, in the batter's box, Around the around the ball field, they had said when he played in the Negro Leagues that Jackie was known for his temper and he was up to his neck in every game. Was the expression one of his teammates used, and that's how he became in 1949 really tough to play against. Now, where it doesn't matter black, white, anything, just a baseball player who is hard to play against if you are on the defense, and it showed. It blossomed. He went from being a very good player to being the best baseball player in either league, uh, and that's how he. That's how he you know, matured as a player. As a person, he was still young and still getting used to the idea of celebrity. Uh, later on, he would have a column in, in the New York Post and a syndicated column to be very outspoken. That year, he was offered a, a column, and he declined it because he didn't want that attention. He didn't want to have something taken out of context or stir something up. So he was still growing into that role. They had one child, Jackie Jr., and that year, Rachel was, was pregnant in 1949 with uh, their daughter, Sharon. They were sort of in that young family, young adult, even at, at 30, uh, life uh, of growing, grow, growing into what he would become at that time. And, and what's interesting is I think it started with, be, once he became so overly respected on the field, that gave him, it gave him even more of an avenue and more confidence uh, to be, begin to be more outspoken, begin to be, uh, address issues of, of civil rights, which he began to do at his locker later in his career, but which he was not yet doing uh, in, in 1949 or the years before. The person I wanted to introduce uh, at this point is Red Barber. Uh, who is he and how is he important to Jackie Robinson's story? Yeah, he was a famous um, announcer for the Dodgers. So uh, primarily on the radio in those years, you would hear Red Barber's voice. Uh, he had a southern drawl um, coming through the radio and very folksy charm, uh, lots, of, lots of lingo, baseball lingo, uh, but with the soundtrack really of, of a baseball fan's li- life in, in the 40s. Uh, he was from the South and had grown up in segregated areas. And before he was... Uh, before Branch Rickey brought in Jackie Robinson, he went maybe a year and a half or so before and said to Red Barber, listen, I'm going to do this. Um, not everybody knows, but I'm going to bring in a, an African-American ball player. And I want you to know Red Barber because if you're not comfortable with that in some way, now's the time for you to leave. Because he, he was in many ways being deferential to Barber to say, hey, if, look, if I bring in a black ball player, and you quit the next day, it's not going to look good for you, it's not going to look good for anyone. 
So think about it. Can you do it? And at first read, Barbara felt, no, I can't. I can't. I've just never been in an integrated, um, integrated scene. <laughs> I, I can't do it. He went home, spoke about it with his wife, spent a few days, and then decided, you know what, of course I can. And he came out and introduced Jackie Robinson, and, and Barbara spoke about that, you know, not proud of his resistance, but acknowledging it as a, as a failure of his. Um, but then he came back and embraced the charge, and what he did is he never mentioned Robinson's color. He just talked about him as a ball player. Uh, and that was, that was very important in many ways to say, to just the implicit, actual equality of everybody on, on a ball field. Doesn't matter what you look like. You're all in it together. Uh, and he would, he, he, he would say, Robinson at times would thank Barbara for what he had done in portraying him. And Barbara was always so incredibly grateful for Jackie Robinson and felt what he learned from him, how much he respected him, and all of those things. The other thing that, that Barbara did, uh, and, and I talk about this in my book, is he would say what was going on, meaning that when the Dodgers were in uh, St. Louis and, and the team could all stay in one hotel, but Jackie Robinson and then later Campanella, whoever the other black ball players were, couldn't stay in the same hotel and had to go stay in another hotel, Barbara talked about that on the air. And for kids growing up in Brooklyn, they didn't really know about segregation. It didn't exist. People, there may have been self-segregation, uh, but it was not legalized segregation, of course, in Brooklyn at that time. And it wasn't taught in school or by any mandate. Uh, so you didn't really know about it. And kids would, get, would listen to it. And I sp spent some time with Ira Glasser, who went on to become the head of the American Civil Liberties Union. And he described first hearing about this, learning about segregation from Red Barber, the nine, ten-year-old kid, and being incensed. What do you mean my guy, my favorite ball player, Jackie Robinson, can't stay in the same hotel? It was an incredible teaching moment and moments over the years, because Barber was one of the early broadcasters who would talk about the environment of things. He really reported uh, reported things out in a way that's now commonplace for broadcasters. But then it was pretty much most guys would uh, go to the ballpark and tell you who hit a double and who hit a home run and go home. But he really worked around the edges and wanted to bring the story and the context into it. So he was, in, in the perception of Robinson in Brooklyn, uh, in his dedication to telling the story as completely and correctly as he could, Red Barber was a very, very important figure. The other story from that period, and I think it speaks to something you referenced at the outset of our conversation, and that is the complexity of his worldviews, uh, was when he agreed to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, can you briefly recap what's important to know about that story? Yes, and, and this has been sort of something that people have, have criticized and, and questioned about Jackie. So it's 1949. And the House on American uh, House Committee on Un-American Activities, as it was officially called, um, is, is interested in debunking any communist thought of any kind. Uh, and Paul Robeson, who was a famous African American athlete, now uh, singer uh, and entertainer, and was also an activist who had embraced communism. And Robeson, Paul Robeson, had said. Um, that he didn't, couldn't see how uh, African-Americans would fight in a war against Russia, given how poorly African-Americans were treated at home in America, 
where they weren't treated that way in Russia. And that was his belief, and that's what he said. And um, the House Committee for Un-American Activities contacted Robinson and asked him to come and respond to that notion that blacks would not uh, participate in a war against Russia. And this is something Branch Rickey, very, Branch Rickey was, he was very capitalist, very anti-communist, um, and so was Jackie. And Branch Rickey very much wanted, wanted Robinson to go and testify. And so he agreed to go down. And he gave, you know, if, if one looks at it, and I talk about this uh, in the book, he gave a really beautiful, impassioned speech on the inequality of, of African Americans at that time uh, the inequity, I should say, uh, in, in America. And that was really the gist of his speech. And he pointed out at that point, uh, newspapers like the Daily Worker and in general the communist movement were very much, at the, had aligned themselves with uh, the civil rights movement. They were very much for integrating baseball, for integrating all things, for that was part of the, that was coexisted with their communist feeling. And Jackie said, listen, I'm not a communist. What they're saying about civil rights is 100 percent true. Whether you, whoever you are, that's actually the case. Uh, but he also said that he didn't agree with what Robeson said, and he would of course fight for his country, uh, which was interesting given how he was treated. Um, we talked really about the court martial, and he suffered other sort of racial uh, slights while in the military, for sure. Uh, but nonetheless, he believed in the military. He believed in the in the American. Uh, American government, and so he pointedly disagreed with Robeson uh, as one paragraph in about a 25-paragraph uh, speech discussion in, in front of the committee. And that stayed with him for a long time, and he, he ultimately, he never regretted, he continued to hold those beliefs, he did feel some regret of saying it in that forum, and of sort of uh, going against Robeson, who he disagreed with him there, but he overall respected him. He knew they were on the same team. They were fighting for equality for African Americans in this country. That was the bottom line. So he did feel some regret about that, but he never wavered from his belief or what he said in, 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 that, uh, in testifying to the committee. The third section, the autumn section of your book, is Jackie Robinson, aged 38. Uh, and in uh, 1956, he was getting towards the end of his Major League Baseball career. So let, let me have you explain how he left baseball. Under what circumstances and how was he feeling about the sport at that point? Yeah, it, it's good. Uh, he, so he left at the end of this season, at the end of the World Series of 1956. Um, he got his, his last hit ever uh, was in Game 6 of the World Series, uh, and, and it beat the Yankees one nothing. A, a hugely exciting game-winning hit that ended up being the last hit of his career, um, and he left. So he had been—he was physically diminished from his star years, and it wasn't clear what role he would have. Uh, and he was actively looking and thinking about a life beyond baseball. Um, this was partly, again, for, for physical reasons and for his wanting to get out of the game. Uh, and also, he, he didn't feel that Walter O'Malley, who was then the owner of the Dodgers, was fully committed to him. Um, and he went ahead uh, that year, and he took a job with Chock Full of Nuts, uh, Jackie did, a, a few weeks after the World Series ended in, in October. So, say in November or December, he took this job with Chock Full of Nuts. 
After he had accepted a job before with Public, the Dodgers actually traded Robinson to the Giants. Uh, the cross, not only, first of all, to trade him from the Dodgers, the most important player in franchise history, then as now, was incredible. And then to trade them to the crosstown enemies. They weren't enemies the way the Yankees were with the Dodgers, but still, a rival team uh, was absolutely shocking <laughs> to people. Uh, Jackie didn't report to the Giants. He said, I'm, you know, thank you for wanting me. He wrote to the Giants owner, but I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm just going to step away from the game. And that's how he left. Uh, and in many ways, it was bittersweet because of that trade. And it's part of what made him not, uh, made him drift away from the, from the Dodgers as, uh, as time went on. He'd had a sort of a strained relationship with some members of the Dodgers front office his last couple of years. And then, of course, uh, about a year after his, uh, Jackie's re resignation, the Dodgers moved out to Los Angeles. And so it, it was a little bit tough in that way. Uh, it was made less tough in the fact that Ricky wasn't there anymore. Branch Ricky was no longer in baseball then. Uh, so he, but, but it was, it was a, a big change. And he, nonetheless, he sort of somewhat seamlessly made this transition. And by early 1957, um, uh, February or so, he was there. He's wearing a you know a, a gray suit and going into the office and had a, a real job with uh, not just a figurehead job, uh, but with you know he had to manage uh, personnel and had to fill out paperwork, which apparently he hated to do. Um, but he, he kind of made that transition into a post-career life. So 1957 to 1972, the. The fourth part of your book is the year 72, which was his final one. But uh, in the ensuing years after he left baseball, you write of him, no former athlete took up the cause of civil rights as greatly as he did in the 50s and 60s. Can you put some more color to that story? In what ways? Yeah, so, and just for some context, remember this is before Muhammad Ali, it's before so many other people would be outspoken. Uh, right initially from the beginning, uh, as he took that job with Chock Full of Nuts, he uh, also had a job for the NAACP, uh, sort of recruiting and, and working uh, throughout the southern region. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, he was a newspaper columnist where he would sometimes write about sports, but mainly wrote about issues of social and uh, social concern and civil rights. Uh, he was engaged with Martin Luther King in many ways. They were at the dream speech. Uh, Jackie and the whole family uh, were there and, and up front at the dais. Uh, he also worked very specifically with um, Martin Luther King on, on a, a repairing some burned churches in Georgia. That was a sort of project that King asked him to take on, that he did. Uh, and he was also publicly, he, he feuded with Malcolm X, although, you know, upon X, when Malcolm X was assassinated, of course, respected him greatly for being part of the same cause, but they argued publicly about the way to go about it. He, he would just simply, as a, as a speaker, as a engager, Robinson was always there. He also had certain projects such as uh, he started a low-income housing uh, construction company shortly before his death. So he's trying to do things on the, on the ground. There was a, a black-owned bank in Harlem that he was a part of. So he was at once doing sort of day-to-day -day things and also using his, his celebrity as best he could to draw attention to issues and continue to 
sort of take up the cause in, in, in the, way that, the way that he could. Um, and he was not shy about being political. He worked for Governor Rockefeller uh, for, for a time. One interesting thing that happened in his career, and again, something that he somewhat regret, regretted, but also certainly understood and li lived, lived by his own decision, going into the 1960 um, election, he supported Richard Nixon over John Kennedy. And a lot of people were taken back by that. This was a time, of course, with the Dixiecrats, um, and John F. Kennedy was, you know, had lunch with George Wallace, um, and and the, the Dixiecrats in the South were the Democrats who were, um, you know, leading the <laughs> the uh, segregationist sort of last gasp of segregationism and, and Bull Connor and, and all those people. And Jackie said, that's not okay. I'm going to uh, support a Republican. Then he'd go back and forth depending on the issues. But he, he was out there and, and wanted to be and wanted to own, uh, own, the, you know, own his opinion and help to have people you know, pay attention to these issues, which he felt were critical and which, quite honestly, uh, remain critical today. There's a lot of what he did and said that you could sort of uh, transfer from him saying it in 1965 or whenever to now in 2022, and it would make a lot of sense. About eight minutes left in our conversation. So um, I think what I want to do now is actually show the clip from CBS News from the, the night that he passed away. They did quite a long segment. This is only one short uh, bit of it. It is uh, their correspondent, Haywood Hale-Brown, uh, talking about Jackie Robinson. So watch and then can wrap this whole story up. The 28-year-old rookie with two bad shoulders and a bad knee played because he felt a right to. And his odd pigeon-toed run, so clumsy yet so fast, was an earnest of his terrifying determination. As a baseball player, Jack felt all the usual pressures multiplied a terrifying multifold. In a sense, he was at bat for every black athlete, hitting against all the curves a hostile world could throw. He represented that shadowy figure called they. They can't take it. They fold up. They don't belong. He didn't, of course, win the battle for a new world. No one man can, but he may someday be listed among those who sent it into extra innings. I'm extremely proud and pleased to be here this afternoon, but must admit I'm going to be tremendously more pleased and more proud when I look at that third base coaching line one day and see a black face managing in baseball. Thank you very much. Kosha Kennedy, that very last clip is of Jackie Robinson himself. He was enticed back to the baseball field just days before he died. Can you tell me that story? Yes. So as, as that clip of him speaking is in Cincinnati before the second game of the World Series. Uh, uh, and Jackie was given a – he was honored. It was the 25th anniversary at that point of his uh, appearance, of, of his breaking into baseball. And he was honored for work he had done for – drug rehabilitation and other things, um, and given, given a microphone. And as, as we touched on, this was his, he had been back briefly earlier in the summer uh, for a, a, an analogous event at Dodger Stadium, uh, and this was now only his second time, essentially, in a major league stadium since his retirement uh, 15 years before. And the, he, but right before the clip you played, he's very generous. He's up there with Pee Reese, his former uh, teammate. Red Barber was there, others... Um, and, and characteristically generous and thankful for his teammates and for all the people who had helped him along the way, but then did not lose an opportunity to point out that baseball still had not had a black manager 
And it would, a couple of years after Jackie died, Frank Robinson came on to be that first uh, black manager. And he, he wanted to draw attention to it. It was one of the things that he felt baseball should be, uh, should be made aware of, and, and they really should have. They were failing remarkably in that area. So here it is, as you point out, barely a little, a little over a week before he died, and he's making this sort of public statement saying, hey, where are the black managers? There's not one in the game 25 years after I broke in. Why is that the case? Um, and then, yeah, his, his, when, he, when he died, it was, you know, to those around him um, or had seen him, it wasn't a total shock just because his, his health really had been failing. To much of the world, uh, it was a shock because he was only 53 years old. Uh, we have four minutes left. I wanted to ask two questions as we close here. First of all, after he died, Rachel changed the citation on his plaque in the Baseball Hall of Fame. From what to what? Initially, uh, when it went up in 1962, Jackie wanted no mention whatsoever of the civil rights, uh, uh, or of the fact that he was a black ball player on, a, on an otherwise all-white field. So it was just, here's a guy who had this hitting record, performed in this way, he's a Hall of Famer. Many years later, Rachel realized that that was, you know, it, it was another teaching moment to have people go in that plaque, go, go into the Hall of Fame and see his plaque, and to include what he had done. Um, and so it, now the plaque went to read, include baseball achievements, but also say that he was the pioneer, the, the first black player, and that he dealt with a lot of adversity. Uh, in achieving that career. So that would be that would the change. So obviously you'd been well familiar with Jackie Robinson's story before you delved into it for this book. What did you learn or what how did your perspective change on Jackie Robinson through this project? I mean, I think in the broadest sense that the, 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 there was a a real complexity to him and there was a changing a, a changing persona, a consistency and also a changing person over the years, and that's probably what led me to structure the book as I did, to try to get that across. Um, you know, we tend to sometimes think of people as one thing or another, or in a soundbite, and, and getting into them and seeing those different layers, and seeing how you know, he, he was a baseball player, but so much more than that, but that his baseball playing was really sort of a vehicle for him to express so much more. These are all things that came much, much clearer to me. Um, and reveal themselves in nuances and details as, as I explored. Spending as much time, final question for you, as you did uh, with Jack, Jackie Robinson's materials uh, and his life story, how would you describe Jackie Robinson's view of America? i say he's hopeful. I think he, he's a flawed, uh, it was a flawed country, and, but he was hopeful for the goodness of it. And, and he would say... Look at what we've done in baseball, despite some of the negatives. But the fact that there, there, and you know, in the 1950s, you're having a black and white ball players embrace on the field and say, "Look, we can do this." Uh, and and he maintained a level of of optimism and and sort of a uh, cliche to say it, but a can-do attitude. He believed things were possible, and he believed you had to stay the course. Uh, and I and I think that that he would have would have felt that there were that there was hope. In, in the American collective, uh, collective psyche and collective willingness to, to be together. The book is True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson, new book by Costa Kennedy. Thank you so much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Susan.
Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.